This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. The Coin World Marketplace is the safest way to buy and sell your coins and bullion. Order from the dealer of your choice and pay safely and securely using our escrow checkout. Visit coinworld.market to browse our inventory today. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to another episode of the Coin World Podcast. I'm Chris Bullfinch. And I'm Jeff Stark. We've got a great, very paper-centric show for you today. We're going to be talking about 1923 horse blankets. We're going to be reviewing some terminology for notes, talking about the mint's coloration of some of the new basketball coins that are coming out, and we have an awesome interview with Mel Wax, the president of the American-Israel Numismatic Association, or ANA, and the progenitor of the Jewish American Hall of Fame's Bronze Medal Series, one of the longest-running medal series in the world that started in 1969. And he also counterstamped a whole bunch of coins. So we had the opportunity to chat to him about a whole range of things and his story in the hobby. Hopefully you enjoy it as much as we had interviewing him. Before I start, I should remind you that you should probably be subscribing to this podcast. Do that today, whatever podcast platform you'd use. And as a special note, we have now started transcribing these shows for those who don't want to listen, can't listen, and all that information, all that the transcripts are available every week in the show notes. So catch us one way or the other for this great time every week. Now, let me talk about the follow-up to what was in the news last week, and that was the uh, National Basketball Hall of Fame commemorative coins. So we had the story in last episode. The U.S. Mint is considering putting color on two of the coins from the three that are mandated by legislation. That has drawn quite a vociferous response. That's a word for it. Negative response <laughs> uh, in, uh, in, in CoinWorld's social media. And we wanted to sh- talk about that, share some of that, because I know that, you know, the commemorative coin program is, it's part of the American series, but it's not an avidly collected one, say, like Morgan Dollars. And it's, it's become a little bit problematic, too, just because, uh, I mean, and we have a, our cover feature for the August edition talks about this at some length, but... Back in the 1930s, the program was abused for to commemorate just a ridiculous number of things, and which is not to say that the Basketball Hall of Fame is not a worthy thing to have a commemorative coin for. It's to say more that I feel like it's a program that unsurprisingly kind of acts as a lightning rod for people's different sort of political and aesthetic peccadilloes. Well, sure, but the commemorative coins, they fit within the American coin landscape. Absolutely. But they kind of don't because not everybody who's excited about a Morgan dollar is going to be excited about the moon landing coin and vice versa. There's some overlap, I think, but the new issues market is a little bit different. They're good gifts. I have nieces, nephews, and so forth. I give them the U.S. Mint birth year set you know the the baby set and all that and but and and that's that's a perfect gift item right and and that doesn't it doesn't have to fit in this broader landscape of the the collectible coins the great designs of a hundred years ago and all that the line that i would draw though in in the context of the basketball hall of fame coins though is that the criticism isn't of the motif, and it's not even of the coins themselves aesthetically. It's of the coloration. the The tenor of the comments kind of suggested that. So well, yes, that, that they were afraid that we were. A lot of them alluded to copying the Canadian mint. One person described that as producing trinkets. I mean, yeah. So so let's share. Uh, Thomas Gates on our Facebook said, no colorizing of coins, no glow-in-the-dark coins, no multi-shaped coins. In fact, do not copy the Royal Canadian Mint plan of turning out trinkets. It's bad enough we get dubious commemoratives almost every year that do not sell. But to further cheapen the product by colorizing the coins is bogus. Tell us how you really feel, Thomas. Yeah, well, and and um, then he got a response from an Alan Pechner, Pechner, a junior says anything is better than the stuff the U.S. Mint is minting today. That's the gist of what he said. 
there were several others who made comments. <laughs> the gist of what he said. <laughs> the, the I g- think that's a word we're not really supposed to say on here. Well, I, oh, I we totally could. It's not even we, that bad. We but. totally could, but I, you know. Yeah, I, no, no. Why? Yeah, no. But uh, then Ryan Begley says, I say go for it. Let's see what the U.S. Mint can do with color. And so, so for fair to say, the uh, response has been mixed. It's been mixed, <laughs> Let, but decidedly anti-mixed, but decidedly against. Which that to me though is interesting because I, I guess my own personal opinion is, I'm nonpartisan on this. I don't really care if the mint colorizes coins or not because I think if the concern is that you're sort of compromising the aesthetic integrity. I think first of all that argument is outlining a very stark definition of what an aesthetically appropriate coin is. I mean... Well, I, look, if we're going to have commemorative coins, why not have them offer some shape, variety, and some color? Uh, that doesn't mean the U.S. Mint has to put color on every single coin. Yeah, However, it's like if, if, if it comes out and it looks terrible, then we won't do it next time. I mean, and, it doesn't and, seem like it's that big a deal. But you understand that there's enough technology out there that they shouldn't swing and miss on this one. No. They shouldn't. I would have loved to have seen. I just wrote about this week some uh, colorized coins from France for the moon landing, and you know the images, the media images that we get make the coin. It looks very appealing. Now, you know, I'm not going to spend a hundred dollars on this coin, even though it has a, I don't know, the 500 mintage or very low. It was like that's that's really, it's affordable and it's it's kind of fun. You know, it doesn't really fit in the, well, my, you know, the, my broader interest. But it's visually distinctive it, is the advantage exactly. that I would argue. And, and so, you know, the Royal Australian Mint has done some beautifully colored space-themed coins over the last five years. Some of them have done very well on the oh, aftermarket. There's some colorized coins that look really great. And so if the U.S. Mint were to use an orange basketball colorization look to these and execute it well, then yeah, I, I mean, why not? Because well, here's the thing, they've never done it. Let's see how they can do. Yeah, Let's well, see what not, it looks like. Why add not some, try new things? Add variety to the U.S. coin landscape. Some of the folks, I think, and weigh in, you know, send us an email, post comments on, on our Facebook or reply to us on Twitter. But I think some of these comments that are against this are coming from folks who are Probably traditionalist in the sense that, you know, you collect Morgan dollars or Wheat Cents or Buffalo Nickels or something. There were constant appeals. A very consistent sort of refrain were appeals to sort of a, you know, oh, don't follow these sort of other mints down this kind of postmodernist or aesthetically, you know, bankrupt rabbit hole or whatever. And to me, that's... Doing it one time is not... No, it's, know, well, first of all, it doesn't imply a pattern. And also, personally, this is just my own view on, on these coins more broadly, is I don't really love the concave, convex, sports ball-themed ones, like the baseball one that came out of... And then, then now we're doing well, basketball. Yeah. 2014 for Yeah, for 2014 baseball. was the baseball one. I don't personally love that just because even if commemorative coins aren't meant to be spent... In theory, they're meant to sort of represent a coin that theoretically could be spent, right? Like, they're, they're meant to represent the form. And so my point is, if you're willing to accept a concave convex coin, I would argue that that is a much greater violation of the form than colorizing it. Now, maybe colorizing it is adding one more violation of the traditional form, but also, why are we so married to the traditional form? I mean, there have been I, coins hey, of all shapes and sizes throughout I, history. Who, who I, I, yeah, I mean, you look at the um, Byzantine Syphate coins or whatever, yep. however you pronounce them. Yep. They, they have that cup shape to yep, them. Yeah, I, I have one of those. My, my neighbor, I showed him the baseball coins, and he's like, oh, man, I want to get those. He got one for, he's like, you know, the next show, he, he, he had me get one for his son for his graduation. I'll say this. He I, got, you know, five or ten for Christmas gifts. You know, the, an the aunt did that. One? Yeah, the baseball because the, the baseball one with the stitches yeah and, and we're i like on the on the, the reverse where the stitches are i actually do like the way they positioned everything on there like yeah. they, they executed i don't know that i love the concave comics but they actually did execute it pretty well and and so this was something that got people's attention outside the hobby yeah that's true and that's that's the sort of the salient advantage and to it, and I think. you know uh, my neighbor every once in a while you know oh, i'd love he wants to know more about well where can i get some wheat sense where can what you know how can i get involved and interested in the hobby and it's because of this awareness that and experimentation yeah you know, seeing something distinctive and unique that you want to buy and I, I and, get that. and you know he's he's in his late 50s probably and he grew up 
when some silver was in circulation. He, you know, he grew up with more wheat scents in circulation. So he's used to those, that design variety and, and real valuable money, as it were, in circulation. So it wasn't a total leap for him to, to start asking more questions. But yeah, Sorry, I was just saying, an aunt of mine, same thing. She's, we grew up, I'm, I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan, and my family, we all, you know, we, we grew up as Cardinals fans. We love baseball in general. She's down in Nashville, and she said, hey, I heard about these baseball coins. How can I get one? Where can I, what's, what, tell me about it. And, you know, I told, uh, I showed a friend here in town the gold baseball ones, and he was, oh, man, I got to have those. Those are really cool. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's. And I imagine examples like that are pretty common throughout all yes. over the country. I would yes. imagine. And and at the same time, you can interest somebody with the romance and beauty of a classic U.S. coin. Mm, romance. But it doesn't hurt to have this modern appeal and say, hey, this is what we can do. Oh, my gosh. You see the coins in your pocket. They you, they don't look anything like this as far as the shape and if there's color. Right. And, but, and to think that the same institution, the U.S. Mint, put these out. It, it, it and the technology It demonstrates exists. a technological capability. So That's something I was going to say. I've, I've, I've said it. I said it on the very first podcast. I've said it for a decade now. This is a big tent hobby. Mm. We all come to the hobby with our own interest and our backgrounds. And I don't look down on somebody who collects VAM, you know, the the varieties for Morgans and Peace Dollars. That doesn't excite me, but it excites somebody else. And we have that, the thread through all of this is our appreciation for the history and the beauty and the thrill of the hunt. And so I am not going to squash somebody else's iteration of that or their yeah. their enunciation of that because we need that we need the passion whatever the passion is if it's wooden nickels if it's uh, i joke the uh, poker chips of the tibetan monks i'm sure they don't exist but however you come to the hobby there's room and as long as you're participating and sharing that with somebody else that's what makes this so fun and valuable well tell us what you think jeff but true those are all very valid points i sympathize with some of the criticism but i don't know that i endorse the kind of wholesale rejection of the concept yes i mean so if the u.s coin program is problematic in as much as it's congressionally driven mm. as opposed to a thought leader and and folks inside the mint being able to come up with ideas you know there's the design process that has to unfold naturally and get constituents involved but that's affected circulating coins i mean think back to the susan b anthony dollar mm -hmm. the fact that we have a vast number of militaristic themes in the last two decades that is something that i think is sorry for the well it just it's it stands out that our commemorative coins um have been very militaristic at a time when there's been, you know, we've been involved in overseas conflicts and, and things, it makes sense that our eyes would sort of turn to the, those themes. But it seems like there's been some things that probably have the, fallen through the cracks. We didn't have a 150th anniversary of Civil War commemorative coin, for instance. That was a big mess. I am surprised that they didn't. And, and moreover, though, surprised though I am that I'm agreeing with the uh, Congressional Committee, or rather the House Committee that oversees the Mint and the BEP, one of their members, I can't remember his name for the life of me, um, said during the discussion uh, with Leonard Olahar and David Ryder about a year ago now, one of the, the representatives said something to the effect of, you know, these coins reflect what our society remembers. You know, yeah. they these are an articulation of our values. And as important as it is to remember the military and to, you know, and to celebrate sports milestones, both of which are big parts of life for a lot of Americans, I think America is a lot more than just our military or just our sports, you know, arena or just our athletic achievements. Well, we have our inventors, we have our artists and exactly. you know, there there are other facets that we don't get to explore enough. Not and and I think that's because of the legal limit on two programs a year, because of the fact that these are used as fundraisers and maybe it's easier for a politician to introduce a bill that supports a specific entity in his or her state, especially if there's a military well, it, meaning behind it. It turns into an activist hobby horse as well, because yeah. if, if you're specifically supporting a particular nonprofit, 
I feel like that is the Lions Club. <laughs> well, that to me feels like a soapbox that these guys are or the, these people are are climbing up on by sponsoring coins whose proceeds are going to benefit these organizations. And, and that to and me is not the reason we should be. That's that's not to say the Lions Club hasn't done great work. No, no, it's it's a, but, it's an important civic organization. But However. <laughs> its importance is not one that transcends national unity and belongs on an American coin. Precisely. You could argue that basketball and baseball are the same, though. So there's two sort of questions here. Are we going to have coins that accurately reflect America or not? And if they do, does it have room for these sort of less serious topic. I'm not sure what the answer is to that because I like some of these fun things that can get people excited. While I also know that, you know, we don't want to become Neoway. We don't want to become Canada where there's 300 coins a year and there's, you know, there... Canada does overdo it just a skosh. Well, sure. sure. Uh, no doubt about it. But, <laughs> but... Give me you know, some Tim Hortons. There, there's a there's a fine line there, and I I don't think this gets us that much closer to that no. fine line at all. No, no, not the slightest. But uh, you know, you're certainly the, anybody in the hobby is welcome to have an opinion, of course. And um, I, I I sympathize with anyone who tries to <laughs> come up with commemorative coin programs that define America, because that is a uh, that is an impossibly tall order. You look at what happened in philatelics, that's stamp collecting. Mm. And I know the traditionalists, the hardliners, are very... The, the evangelical stamp collectors. <laughs> the, yes, the, <laughs> the evangelical stamp... Not you know, evangelical in the theological sense, evangelical as an adjective. Sure, but... To, to be but, clear. But, but, but you know, th this idea that there's you have to hew to tradition all the time, at the same time, yes, I, I mean, it is it is important to note that there are milestones that aren't celebrated and and at the same time where there's a lot of pop culture themes on stamps you know the coinage program is nowhere near that severe as far as maxing out the themes that have i would say minimal national relevance so you know they, they occupy different spheres and in as much as for one thing you know who uses stamps these days i mean i use them <laughs> but yeah don't, don't go tell the lens and scott folks that but you know, I like stamps, and I'm sort of a collector, more of a just accumulator. But <laughs> yeah, and, and and you know, if somebody who likes paper money, stamps are, are just smaller versions of paper money in a sense. They're a a yeah, you can stick them on stuff though. Physical printed document or item that has a stated value that you've traded money for. Well, that's a stated value that you can only apply in one context. Though. Sure, as okay. far as the <laughs> artistry. Anyway, when it comes to commemorative coins, we have a much narrower focus, and so it is important to focus on designs and themes that have a broader appeal, whereas when you're talking about stamps, there's, there's more loosey-goosey, there's more room in there. So that's kind of what I think and what Chris yeah. thinks. What do you think? Let us know. There's all sorts of ways to find us. We don't need to rehash that. Now, I believe it's time to talk about... We're talking about I, paper money, right? I think you have a question for me apropos okay. of paper money. Okay, so, so, so we, we have a trivia coin, question. This is Coin World Trivia. It's out of a board game or card game that we used to produce back in the 70s and the 80s, and Jeff picked out an expert, I think. Expert level question. This is an expert level question today, guys, so I'm not yes. going to get it. Oh, you might. I, well, you never know. You might. The fact that I gave you the answer already. No. <laughs> I don't think I heard it. So. No, I didn't. Good. So the question is, how many series of large size national bank notes are there? Mm -hmm. So there are different series. These are large size national bank notes. Yep. There's, there's a lot to unpack there. Mm. How many series were there? I will ponder that because I actually, this is something I actually know a little bit about. And I hope our listeners also know a little bit about So they can listen to it, and they will find out the answer in just a little bit. So now, again, apropos of paper money, we've done a lot of coin work on the Coin World podcast, which makes a certain amount of sense. But a big facet of what we write about and research about and work with does involve paper money. We have a paper money component of both our weekly and our monthly. Our monthly actually has a dedicated paper money section. So it only makes sense that... Sooner or later, we were bound to run across paper money terms, and this episode struck us as the as as good an episode as any to start talking about 
some paper money terminology. So we're going to start just like we started with the terminology relating to coins. We're going to start with the very basic stuff for term of the week this week. So if you're looking at a piece of paper currency or paper money, I know I know you like to, <clears throat> yeah, Currency yeah. can be coins or paper money. You f- feel feel free to unwad your briefs at any point there. It, it um, is. It, I'm sorry. I've been here 15-plus <laughs> years. I have had that beat into me that currency – you know, as, kn- knowing this place, that might actually be literal. As no, but <laughs> I'm not saying that. But it is there, there is there is a proper usage of the term, and currency yeah, yeah, right. applies to that which is both coin and paper. So let's talk about paper money, a specific form of currency. Professor Stark, everybody. <laughs> Uh, yes, that that is a very important distinction. There will be a test. <laughs> yeah, take notes. Pun intended. That is <laughs> very much so. Those are important distinctions, and that is that is important to remember. And we'll actually be delving into the sort of minutia of the distinction between those terms in future segments like this when we come to cover paper money. But for this very first episode, we're starting as basic as it comes. If you're looking at a piece of paper money, uh, in the same way that a coin... You know, the sort of um, pedestrian or the sort of layman's term is heads and tails for the two sides of a coin. But numismatists call it obverse and reverse. There is an analog to those terms in the world of paper money. You call the front of a note what would be the obverse of a coin. You call it the face. So if you're looking at a note, the side that we would call the obverse on a coin is called the face. Now, the reverse of a coin, the equivalent for a note is the back, which to me actually sounds a little bit too, I don't know. It just, it, it, it sounds simple. like a very, yeah, very simple, very, I don't know, just, it makes too much sense. You know, some of these terms, it almost feels like they're disconnected from the actual object, but back makes a lot of sense. So face is the equivalent of obverse and back is the equivalent of reverse. So remember those terms. So when we talk about uh, paper money in future episodes, you'll know that when we talk about the face, we're talking about the equivalent of the obverse and back the equivalent of the reverse. I wish I knew more about paper money, but all I ever seem to be left with are coins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. After I pay my bills, <laughs> get a few coins. Yeah, just put them together and maybe we'll get to do laundry. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So now, Jeff, I think that there was something pretty cool that was happening this week in history. What was absolutely, that? Absolutely, absolutely. And so we want to go back in time... It's coin-related, though. We're going to deviate back to coins a little bit. And the date is July 31st, and these events are related. They're three years apart. July 31st, which is two days after my birthday. (laughs) That's true, but that's not what I'm picked out. Every listener, feel free to reach out to Jeff and wish him a happy birthday. Oh, gosh, no. (laughs) Unless you're sending me coins. Anyway, no. (laughs) So July 31st. Listeners, send him coins. In 1792 was when David Rittenhouse laid the foundation stone for the first Philadelphia Mint. Cool. 1792, July 31st. You can't get any fact more foundational to America's coinage than that. (laughs) The The very start of the very beginning. And of the U.S. Mint. Three years later, on the same date, July 31st, 1795, was the first delivery of gold coinage from the U.S. Mint. A total of 744 half eagles. Now, the half eagle is the $5 denomination. There were 744 of those, 1795, and that was, let's see, that would have been 224 years ago this week. 224 years ago. That's kind of, in a lot of senses, when the American part of our hobby started in sort of a meaningful way, 224 years ago. That is extremely cool. So that's, I I always love these explorations into history, get to learn about the hobby. I mean, everybody in the hobby loves history, right? And so that's, that's where we are with that. Now let's talk about another facet of paper money, though, Series? because it relates yes. to all so, of what's going a- on today. Apropos, kind of of your of your history lesson there, Jeff, is the 1923 uh, what's called the horse blanket silver certificate. Now, in the same way that the cornerstone of the Philadelphia Mint being laid 224 years ago is a big part, it's a big shift in the hobby. Represents the beginning of American coinage. 1923 represented the end of an era of what's called large-size paper money. So 1923 represents a watershed moment in the history of American paper money in that 
that was the year of the introduction of the last piece of large size U.S. paper currency. Now, small size paper currency wouldn't be introduced until 1928, but we'll get to that in a second. So large size and small size paper currencies very obviously represent the two different sizes of circulating U.S. notes. Now, 1923 and before, notes were actually quite a bit larger than they are today. People are very familiar with the, you know, one, if you're lucky in circulation, you'll find a two, five, ten, twenty dollar notes that we handle every day. Those notes used to be quite a bit larger than they currently are. Not quite twice as big, but actually probably more Sub- than twice Substantially as big. larger. Substantially. They used to be substantially larger after their introduction. The very first federally issued paper currency came in 1861, and there were all kinds of different iterations all down the years. And after the establishment of the Federal Reserve in 1913, they changed again. An important distinction to keep in mind in regards to the series 1923 silver certificates is the difference between a silver certificate and a Federal Reserve note. Federal Reserve notes, all of the series of Federal Reserve notes were produced after 1913, which was the establishment of the Federal Reserve, whereas a silver certificate is somewhat different. Those sort of inherit the lineage that dates all the way back to 1861 with the introduction of federally backed and federally issued paper currency to help fund the Civil War. So... Those are actually two different series. So in 1923, uh, they re-upped the large size one last time. And in the, from the late 19-teens and into the 1920s, there is a discussion within the Treasury Department about the prudence of different sizes. As a result of World War I, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, in conjunction with the Treasury, were eager to cut costs for the production of paper currency. And so a number of different reports were commissioned and delivered. And in 1927, 1928, the decision was made to reduce the size. So you go from a large paper currency series, the series 1923 that was introduced, alongside the series 1914, 1918 Federal Reserve notes. And so you have the decision made in the late 20s to reduce the size. So the 1923 note was the last large-size note in the last large-size series to be approved and produced. So, part of the reason that they're referred to as horse blankets, that term is a reference to their large size, because by the time the small-size currency hit circulation in 1929, and once people got used to seeing smaller-size notes, the old 1923s, which were still around because 1923 wasn't that long before 1929, Seeing the old 1923s in circulation was sort of a throwback, and to refer to their larger size, people would refer to them as horse blankets. So, the motifs featured on the 1923 horse blanket notes are actually quite simple. George Washington appears on its face, much like on a contemporary note, though there's a much larger blue treasury seal uh, to the left of uh, Washington's portrait, and a large stylized one to the right. And the back is very, very simple. It just says $1 in the middle of a blank field with some stylized green sort of finery around the border with a couple of ones denoting the denomination. So it's actually aesthetically a very simple note, and it is a throwback to the end of the large paper currency era. And they can be found quite inexpensively. You can buy a circulated example for 20 30 40 bucks. 40 bucks will get you a nicer circulated example. If you want kind of a one in a much lower grade, you can pay more like 20 or 25 or $30. So they're an accessible and interesting series that harkens back to a very different time in our monetary history. So I don't mean to be a wet blanket or to be a horse's behind. <laughs> However, that was a lot to follow. So I think I, I just want to ask, the takeaway is yeah. the horse blanket is what we're talking about this week. Yes. And that was post Small size note. It was a name given after the small sizes came out because of suddenly this. They weren't after this. So the, it's it's a very confused period. Yes. Because with the establishment. Because you had circulation of two different types of notes. Exactly. Of the same size. Then you have introduction and, of new notes that are of a smaller and size. And overlapping denominations. Yeah. I mean, you had, I mean the, there is a series 1918 $1 note that also had George Washington on the face. But and it was larger. It was the same size as the horse blanket. It was a larger yeah. size note. It came out in 1918. Washington's portrait is on the left side of the note. It's important to note that those were national bank notes, though, because of the, the treasury was contracting yeah. through the banks in the different cities. It is a very jumbled, confused period in monetary history. And by the mid-late 1920s, all of the people in the treasury and Bureau of Engraving and Printing apparatuses, they were aware of that. And there was a concerted effort made in the late 1920s to standardize the currency systems and to make their production more efficient. 
and, and that's the rise what of with the small size and the currency. rise of small size currencies was very much born out of that deep confusion. Yes. So, so there was, it's the difference between Federal Reserve notes and non-Federal Reserve notes that are being issued by the same government. Silver it's very, certificates, national bank notes. Yeah, it's, it's very, a very, it's a jumbled mess, really. It, but it, it's it a fascinating uh, era, and certainly we will explore that later and hopefully provide further elucidation. Yeah, well, we could probably do an entire episode just talking about the history of. Oh, you yeah. Uh, you could do multiple episodes hours on, because and and, it's and so that complicated. would that would tie in well to a you gotta see this because yes, these notes would. are so beautiful. Oh, and the early ones from like sixty one uh, and sixty two they go for hundreds of thousands. Of and dollars. educational notes are great. There's the watermelon notes. There's yep. there's just all sorts of fun stuff. Great names, tombstones, and other. Put well, it like this, listeners: our currency used to look a lot cooler than it currently does. Yeah, and and of course we're it's, we're not going to change ours because we're standard all over the world and you t- to change designs and and really ruffle feathers that would that would cause more confusion as well so let's go back we've been talking you mentioned national bank notes that yes. was that was uh, part of the trivia question it was and the question was how many series of large size national bank notes are there what do you think the answer is um i'm gonna guess five jeff am i right you are so close Dang. You are you are so close. There Dang. are actually four different series, and I think the reason this is an expert level question. In fairness, it is an extremely difficult question to answer. It is because I think you you have to look at these as the different twenty year charter periods, and there was there was a little bit of overlap. Uh, like at the end, I think the last charter period would have extended beyond twenty nine. Yeah, beyond twenty nine. But then you have the small size notes, and so that I think. Yeah. Yeah, and then they they changed, they overhauled it before that yeah, period expired. Yeah, I think they reset the clock or whatever. But in yeah. any event, so there are four different series of large size notes that were issued before small size notes came in 1929, which are series 1928, but they were issued in 1929. So expert level question. It's a lot to uh, digest, but there you have it. This episode of the Coin World podcast is sponsored by the Coin World Marketplace. Are you selling your coins on the CoinWorld Marketplace? Put your inventory in front of buyers from around the globe. Visit CoinWorld.Market today and become a seller. And now, back to the show. Speaking of some more things for you to digest, we really hope you enjoy our interview with Mel Wax. We have the opportunity to talk to him about all kinds of things, ranging from ANA to the JAHF and his counterstamp. So we had a really wonderful time talking to him, so please enjoy the interview. Today we are joined by Mel Wax, who has worn many hats in the hobby. People may know him as the director of the Jewish American Hall of Fame medal series. He's been deeply involved in the American-Israel Numismatic Association for decades. He also has issued counter stamps on coins in the 1970s and 80s. Thank you for joining us, Mel. Oh, my pleasure. Can we start at the beginning? Because, like I say, anybody who's familiar with your name knows that you've come into the hobby and been active in the hobby in very different areas. How did you get started in coin collecting and numismatics? Well, I'm I'm sitting by my desk, and and I I pull out a drawer, and there's a little leather pouch there. And that's the leather pouch that my dad gave me when I was 10 years old, and in it, were a bunch of coins. He was originally from Montreal, so there were some little Canadian uh, five-cent silver pieces, which I love. The and fish scales? Indian head cents and half dimes and, and a few things. And uh, as a true collector, I still have all those coins. That's very cool. So what age was this? Where were you? I was 10. Okay. So how many years have you been in the hobby, if we may ask? Uh, that would make it over 70. Wow. Wow. Okay. So we know where we are now and we know kind of where you were then. How did it develop? Did you did you go the traditional route of setting it aside for girls and career and all that? Or have you stayed involved every part of that journey? I've pretty much been involved uh, all the time. I, my interests have changed. I started off collecting, uh, pardon the expression, pennies. <laughs> it doesn't sound right saying I collected cents. I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> I collected uh, Indian head pennies and uh, Lincoln cents. 
put together complete collections, and you know, and like extremely fine or so. And then I went on to collecting patterns, and I did that in the in the fifties and sixties. And at at that time, when I collected U.S. pattern coins, people used to say, "Oh, they're not coins. I'm not interested." <laughs> Little yeah. did they know that I, you know, coins that the patterns that cost me fifty dollars then are worth uh, five thousand dollars or more today. Yeah, patterns, I, I think, are fascinating because they stand as a record of what might have been had political fortunes and and other uh, history gone slightly different. Do you, and, uh, you know, they offer a lot, a lot of different designs and some of them very nice. Yes. Uh, I remember when I collected them, the coins had to be perfect. How they grade today, I don't know. My, I, just, I just gave my pattern collection to Stacks to sell. In the future. Oh, so very we'll, cool. We'll, we'll see how they grade today. Awesome. So that was in the 50s and 60s, you say. At what point did you transition into your heavy involvement in medallic art? Because I know that um, Alan Stahl has described your the JAHF medals as one of the three most important medal series. Talk about when that started and, and your interest in that side of things. Right. Frankly, I, I, I know all about my coins, my first coin, my first ancient Judean coin. I don't remember my first medal. <laughs> it, it's, it's funny. It's lost in, in the annals of history. But um, I'll tell you how I started the Jewish American Hall of Fame. And I, uh, I was an electrical engineer. I was out in, uh, originally from New York area, and I was out in California. Uh, we were living in uh, Sacramento. I was working on a uh, top-secret uh, SR-71 spy plane, and even my wife didn't know what I was working on. And uh, we, uh, they have the state fair in Sacramento, and uh, when we went there, I saw they had a huge menorah, and I discovered there was a Jewish museum in Berkeley. So uh, one day we drove an hour and a half to Berkeley and uh, went in. We were walking around looking at the exhibits, and this gentleman came over and, and said hello and said he was Seymour Fromer, and I said, that's nice, and, you know, we chatted. I said, it's, it's too bad that I don't see any coins and there are medals in the museum. And he said, how would you like to be numismatic consultant? I said, well, that would be nice. Anyway, so the next day I, I went home and called to the museum and I asked who Seymour Fromer was. You know, maybe he was just a guy off the street. <laughs> and uh, and they said he's the director of the museum. So that's how I became numismatic consultant to the Magnus Museum. Uh, shortly later, shortly after, I um, had the idea to put out a series of medals. I was originally going to do an international series, but... Uh, Somebody from the Israel Government Coins and Metals Corporation complained to me. They said that that would be in competition to them. So I changed it to the Jewish American Hall of Fame series. And that started in 69. You want to hear something, an amazing story, I'll tell you. Yeah. In, in 69, Victor Reese was asked to do the first metal. He was actually a, a metal worker. He made... Uh, uh, huge uh, uh, designs that were outside of synagogues, churches, and so forth. So he made this, usually you make a model, it's about nine inches for the metal. It's usually made out of clay, and then they cast that in plaster of Paris, etc. He made his model out of solid metal, and it's all welded together. It's a, it's a, it was a beautiful thing. Anyway, some years later, uh, the director of the museum loaned that model to somebody in Sacramento, somebody I actually knew, and somehow it disappeared. A few days ago, somebody who buys Jewish American Hall of Fame medals for me uh, emailed me and said, Hey, I, I, I got this plaque for, Magnus, for the Magnus medal. What can you tell me about it? He had previously bought another plaque. But I, I have made, in, in a few instances, some galvanos which are, uh, it's hard to describe, but they're electrotypes, they're hollow, but they look like uh, large metals. And so uh, 
I said, I got all excited when he said that, because I thought immediately of this lost model. So after a few emails back and forth, it is the lost model. After over 45 years, and I can tell you how it's a miracle. He bought it on eBay for 40 bucks. I don't want to tell him, but anyway, it's priceless to me and to the Hall of Fame archives. So I said, well, it's sort of stolen. It disappeared, sort of stolen, and I said, I'd like you to just give it back to us, and I'll reimburse you for whatever the cost was. That's what he told me. The cost was only $40. And I said, I'll give you two other original plaques made for Barbara Streisand in exchange. And so he shipped it back to me the next morning. What a great guy this was. And he said, you know, it deserves to be in the archives and so forth. And I got it a few days later. And I asked him, I said, could you ask the guy who you bought it from what he knows about it? So he emailed it. And most of the time you'll tell somebody, hey, the item I bought from you was stolen. They're not going to tell you much. But this guy was another real collector, and he told him the story. And he said he bought it from somebody at a yard sale, and the person told him that it was found in a storage bin. So if this plaque could talk, we'd know. But I tried calling the fellow who originally sort of lost it in Sacramento, and I found out he had passed away about 10 years ago. So we'll never know, but the plaque is in outstanding condition, and I'm thrilled that I'm going to write a story and send it out to the press. Well, that seems like a really good turn. It was a miracle. What are the odds? Well, stories like those sort of underscore how uh, the the stories of ownership and the sort of succession of ownership can sometimes change in, in dramatic ways. So that's that's a wonderful Absolutely. story. So something we've already mentioned, uh, one of the biggest aspects of the JAHF's work and one of the most sort of notable contributions of the JAHF are the metal series that, as we said, uh, date back to 1969 when the program started. I've written about a number of them now myself. And, and, and I appreciate it. Yeah, sure, of course. And I'm curious, though, what are the criteria for inclusion on a JAHF medal? What are the qualities that you look for in a candidate that you'd like to put on one of those medals? Well, somebody who's made a real contribution to uh, American culture and society and maybe the world. Uh, For the first decades, I, I actually chose who it was in consultation with Seymour, Fromer, and others. And since 2000, I decided to go legit, and we formed an advisory council of, uh, of uh, historians. And, and, and I, would you like a scoop? Sure. Absolutely. Just today, I got the last vote to our 2020 inductee. Okay. And it's going to be Dara Torres. You probably never heard of her, right? No, can't say I have. This the okay. swimmer? Well, she uh, <laughs> she has competed in swimming yeah. in five different uh, Olympics. Olympics. Yeah, she's like in her forties. Very absolutely. Um, yes, yeah, you know her, right? Yep. And uh, I had never realized that she was Jewish. Uh, with the name Dara Torres, you know who knows. But anyway, her her father was from Cuba. What's interesting is years ago we made a medal commemorating Columbus and his interpreter, who was Jew, who was the only known Jew on the trip. And his name was Torres, and he settled in Cuba, and that's where her father's from. So now I have to, I don't know if there's any relationship, but it's kind of interesting. But, um, yeah, I, I got her permission before I submitted her name to the committee. I got her permission because you have to get, if somebody's alive or if they have an estate, you better get their permission if you don't want a lawsuit. Yeah. <laughs> so I've learned that. And, well, how and how and how, I was going to say, and how did you learn it? What was was that? Uh, <laughs> was was that with uh, Justice Ginsburg or what? No, Justice Ginsburg was lovely when I, I did her medal, 
and I sent it to her, and she uh, she said, could I send her an extra one because her mother-in-law was in the hospital, and uh, her mother-in-law had given her, you know, a lot of help and aid over the years, and, and she wanted to give her a medal. So we sent her an extra medal for her mother-in-law. Well, uh, I can tell you he's, he's deceased now. Isaac Stern. Ah. The Isaac Stern story. Before we did Isaac Stern, the uh, violinist, we sent a letter to his agent and asked for a photograph and told him what we're doing. And the agent said, uh, well, Isaac Stern cannot endorse this project and sent me a picture. And I said, no, I didn't want his endorsement. I just, <laughs> I just wanted to be able to do it. So we did it. And uh, the, an article appeared in the New York Times, uh, Ed Ryder's uh, column, I think. Yeah, and uh, I always got. I always became friends with the columnists in the New York Times coin column, <laughs> and they were always very kind to the Jewish American Hall of Fame. Anyway, he wrote it up, and it was a nice picture of it. And probably, I, my guess is somebody called up Isaac Stern and said, "I just saw this horrible <laughs> medal or something." And uh, so Isaac Stern called up the director of the museum. Uh, Seymour Fromer and, and bawled him out. But fortunately, our uh, artist, Gerda Reese had saved the letter that I had received with the photograph. And uh, so uh, we told him that, you know, we had this letter and he, he, he knew about it, so he, he couldn't complain. And next we got a, uh, a call. He wasn't happy, I'm sure, with this. Next we get contacted by Carnegie Hall, because Carnegie Hall's on the other side of the medal. So Carnegie Hall said, well, he used a picture of our hall. I said, well, it's 100 years old, and I walk by it every day in New York. He said, well, normally some, if somebody wants to do that, they uh, ask permission. I said, I'm sorry, what, what should I do? He said, you know, write a... Uh, write a letter to the board and, and tell them you've done it and, and offer a donation. So I did that, and they were very nice. They accepted it, so that that took care of that. But that taught me to be very careful. <laughs> well, yeah, you should probably make sure that all the uh, scenes and participants on, in the medals are, you know, willing participants. <laughs> That's probably yeah, a... I think a lot of medalists don't know that, and they do anybody in... Uh, uh, one of the people, um, Irving Berlin, would not allow. He was he was inducted into the Hall of Fame. I asked him. He was a hundred years old, by the way, and uh, we did it for his hundredth birthday. But he refused to allow us to do medals, so we just did a plaque. And all of our plaques are hanging in the Virginia Holocaust Museum in Richmond. And so he allowed us to do a plaque, and uh, Marika Samoji did a, a plaque of his, but no medals were allowed. And it's interesting because when the United States issued a congressional medal in his honor, they also, usually they make copy, they give a gold medal to the uh, honoree, and they usually make uh, uh, bronze copies, I think in one and a half and three inch sizes. Yeah. Well, they didn't make it for him. And because he, he didn't allow it. So I don't know the reason. Maybe it was a superstition. Jewish religion is you know, not supposed to make images of people, living things. And it's really interpreted as a three-dimensional image, like an idol. So, uh, But uh, maybe it was that. Maybe he didn't want anybody making money from himself. I don't know. But anyway, no medals were made. Hmm. Pretty strict control of his uh, of his likeness. It took me decades before I was able to find a picture of the Congressional Medal. I, I finally had to use the Freedom of Information Act, and uh, and they sent me pictures, and that made news in all the newspapers. I sent that out as a press release, and it got written up in Coin World and all the other, and the other numismatic publications. So that was kind of exciting for me to find that out. Yeah, breaking some, uh, breaking a little bit of news and, and getting those images must have been quite exciting. So you know, I love sending out press releases. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I had noticed that. Um, <laughs> um, so where do you see the Jewish American Hall of Fame medals? How do you see them interacting with and fitting into the larger world of American medallic arts? And okay, this 
there's going to be an article published in uh, well first of all I think they're outstanding it's the longest continuing series of medals in the United States and perhaps the world privately issued except for government so uh, we use uh, we use real sculptors uh, they're done in very high relief and uh, we make very they're very small mintages the mintages lately have dropped so we make a little over 100 bronze, 60 silver, and 30-odd gold-plated silver. So they're really rare, and I'm very happy to see them on eBay where they're offered at pretty high prices, much higher prices for than other Judaic medals made by Israel, for instance. So people appreciate the, um, the rarity and the, and the uh, artistry. In fact, I have, well, I have a lot of non-Jews who buy them. In fact, I, ha I sell them to uh, people in China. One of my, uh, I made good friends with him. I visited this fellow one time. He's a medalist himself. And uh, I visited him one time. Uh, I took a, a ferry from, my, from Hong Kong where I was visiting my daughter. And in fact, he and his family were just... Uh, just uh, in the United States, and we spent uh, a lovely day with with them. So I I feel that the purchasers of our medals are friends, and I think the feeling is returned. Many of them have been buying medals for 50 years, 40 years, 30 years. So I have a, an important nucleus that buys, and then uh, we get a scattering of new orders each year. Where does it fit in? That was the question <laughs> before I started rambling. Well, I think it's one of the most important series of art medals in America. Uh, my book, I wrote a book about them, and it's on the Newman Numismatic Portal. Anybody can read it for free. And uh, I'm refining it a bit now and working with the Newman Numismatic Portal. They're very helpful in actually uh, getting a book ready for publishing. And I'm going to publish a print copy later this year. Awesome. I just had a uh, an exhibit in Cincinnati at the uh, Skirball Museum in Cincinnati. Uh, they may, they mounted a beautiful exhibit of all of our medals. We, we loaned them two sets of bronze medals, plaster models, uh, process sets showing how medals are made in, in a film. And they put this up. They did a beautiful job of mounting it. I, I, I went there with my wife and daughter, and it was so nice, and they were so nice that I contributed all of this to the museum. So they're going to have it permanently, and they'll have a rotating exhibit. Wow, that's great. Of all of the medals produced in the Jewish American Hall of Fame series, of all of the different contributions, what do you consider the greatest contribution of the Jewish American Hall of Fame and its medal series to the world of American numismatics and medallic arts? Like, what's the greatest thing that has been either put out or the, you know, the most significant achievement of the program? I think what's interesting is that it's very interesting to topically. People probably don't realize that. In fact, I wrote an article, and it's going to be published later this year, Numismatist, and I'm going to present a talk on this at the TAMS meeting at the ANA on Wednesday at 1, 1 o'clock. And uh, it's amazing how many topical items of interest are on the medal. I mean, we have medals with guns, with animals, with ships. Uh, with planes, baseball players, baseball players, medicine, music, pianos, violins. There's a lot of interest in there if somebody doesn't want to attack the whole series. To collect the whole series today is very, very challenging because of the low mintages. You can start off on eBay, but it's very hard to complete the collection. My prediction is 10, 20 years from today, there'll be two types of collectors. One collecting things out of circulation and for the challenge of putting a date mint mark collection together. And then the millionaires who are buying coins at auction these days at incredible prices. And I think one day people are going to look at these metal set series and see uh, not only mine, but the medals for the uh, Hall of Fame of Great Americans, 
Society of Medalists, those are the other important series. And it's a real challenge putting these together. And the artwork is beautiful. The sculptors, are many of them have done coins, have done medals. And I think for the challenge, and maybe, uh, maybe medals will be worth thousands of dollars too someday. So one of your significant contributions to the numismatic market and landscape are your counterstamped coins. I've seen them come up at auction. I think most of us have encountered a Mel Wax counterstamp. You know, if you if you Google Mel Wax, the counterstamp coins come up. Not the Jewish <laughs> American Hall of Fame. I'm insulted. <laughs> right. But anyway, I'm proud of that. Yeah, absolutely. And so you know, you put them out for a whole variety of different reasons. The notably the one that I find particularly interesting is the 1978 uh, counterstamp on peace dollars celebrating the Camp David Accords. And I wonder, do you have any interest in putting out more counterstamped coins, not only about significant, you know, events in terms of international politics relating to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or any other significant event? Do you foresee that continuing and do you hope to sort of document other landmark events, both in that context and others? get information out about the counterstamps. When I started out, let's talk about that uh, Camp David peace dollar that you mentioned, okay? I sent press releases out, and that got printed in the New York Times coin column, as I said, before Ed Ryder. I forget who the coin columnist was. Well, the, the next couple of days, this was the biggest thrill of my life. The next couple of days, the mailman came with stacks of mail, literally stacks of mail, orders for this. And I sold out all 1,000 of those pieces. Amazing. They sell on eBay anywhere from a couple of hundred dollars to $300. It's amazing. Recently, I came out of counter-stamping retirement after 30 years, the last in the series that I did, the Truman Centennial. 1981. 84. 84. I'm sorry. That's I should know that. I'm a Missouri boy. <laughs> oh, yes. You should know that. Yeah, we have his, his home on yeah. it. By the way, I should own people, that. People I don't own that. Hand engraved, hand engraved dies by Adam Cool. All of my counter stamp coins up to 84. And he, he did a fabulous job. So that was the last one, and then you did, you've that done one more recently. One. Then I came out of retirement because I, and some of my most successful account stamp coins were for popes, especially for Pope John Paul II when he visited Mexico. We did, I did pesos. We did, he did England, and I did a large, a large penny. And uh, did, he visited the United States, and I did a, a Kennedy half. Very successful. So I, I decided to do Pope Francis when he visited the USA. So I did that one. And, did, you know, did okay. I made 235 BU Kennedy halves. Not that bad. Was good. Yeah. The next one was really fun. When I was a kid... I used to take any, uh, any barber half dollar or barber quarter out of circulation. Would you believe these were in circulation? Anyway, I took them out, and I have I had a number of them here, and I always wondered what I would do with them. And then it came around uh, 2015 was the 100th anniversary of Einstein's theory of general relativity. And I figured... Wouldn't that be fun to put that counter stamp on 1915 half dollars? So I just happened to catch somebody selling some a quantity of barber halves on the eBay. So I contacted them. I said, do you have any quantity of uh, 1915 halves? She said, yeah, I think there are a bunch included in this lot that I just bought and got, it got back to me. And sure enough, they had a hundred of them. I counter stamped those. I mean, that was great fun. And, of course, I had to find a new dye maker and a, a new mint because Adam Cool also struck, counter-stamped all the coins himself. So I found uh, a new mint, 
in California, and and uh, they did a nice job. They had never counter-stamped a coin before, so they had to figure out what pressure to put on the press. So the test pieces, the test pieces were the half dollars that I had pulled out of circulation when I was a kid. Those are the test pieces, and uh, and then we uh, did the hundred on the uh, on the 1915s that I bought from this fellow on eBay. Very cool, very cool. My last counterstamp coin, do you know what that was? I I don't remember, but as soon as you say it, I will. Hog money. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the uh, 2016 anniversary. I didn't do a commemorative. Yeah. Why didn't Bermuda do a 400th anniversary commemorative of hog money? That's the first money in the new world. Yep. But they didn't, I waited and see, and they didn't do it. So I did it. I reproduced one of the uh, hog uh, money coins and counter stamped with a half dollars again. I think I sold 60 odd pieces. So I, you know, I didn't lose any money on it and it was fun. If I can't get the proper publicity, I'm not going to sell them. Years ago, it was good. Years ago, when I did them for 30 years, uh, for I did over 20 pieces, I had people, collectors, who bought each one, or most of them. So I would just send out a, a letter with pictures and so forth to each person, and I would sell them that way. But the, those people are long gone from uh, interest, and so... Um, Unless I get, even if I get a press release uh, printed in Coin World and Numismatic News, etc., I just sell a few dozen. So I no plans to do another, but you never know. Okay. <laughs> so to bring this full circle, we've broken the news that the 2020 honoree for the JAHF medal is Dara Torres, swimmer. Also uh, interesting to note, next year is an, is an Olympic year, so that there's some synchronicity there. Right. Does that mark the end of the series? We had the 50th anniversary of the series yes. this year. Yes. That's why we mounted the exhibit at the museum in Cincinnati. So I was, was toying with the idea of ending it. But I told my wife, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know, I'm not going to sit here and watch television, and I'm not going to take up golf. So, uh, I mean, I love doing it. I love working with the artist and the medalist. I've been working with Eugene Daub, who's one of the best for uh, a dozen years now. The mints are another story. The mints have been falling by the wayside. Medallic art went out of business uh, this last year. I've been working with Highland Mint. They've been doing a, a great job. It's not easy to do the medals. You have to not only be able to do the strikes, our medals are odd-shaped, so yes. you have to be able to trim the metal, and then you have to apply a really nice patina. Not many uh, mints can do that. I've been working with the Highland Mint for a number of years, and uh, I think uh, the last couple of medals they made for us have been outstanding. I just called them up because I'm a real pain in the neck when medals are made and because I, I want I want what I want. I want good quality, excellent quality. So I called them up and I said, would you do uh, another medal for me? He said, only if you don't pick on us so much. I said, <laughs> deal. <laughs> so, so we're all set. We have the subject. I told uh, I asked you, I told Eugene Dow how do you do like to do another medal? He said he'd love to. We have the mint saying they're willing to deal with me for another year, so we're going to do it, and oh. we'll see what goes on beyond that. Awesome. So then the series is going to continue as long as you continue. Exactly. <laughs> who who will pick up the mantle going forward? Uh, for the series, for AINA? I mean, is, is there a way to ensure that this legacy continues? The uh, series will probably end when I end. But uh, the the Jewish American Hall of Fame has a wonderful website. It's amuseum.org. The uh, American Numismatic Society is going to make sure that the website stays up 
and the Haver Union College uh, and their uh, Skirball Museum is going to make sure that the content stays uh, up and up to date because we're going to continue the uh, the plan is to continue the advisory council and uh, we will still have new people each year. They just won't be a medal, but they'll be updated on the website. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending some time today with us to discuss your path in the hobby and you, and all the fun participation that you've uh, been able to do these last 30, 40 years. But hopefully, you'll be at the ANA in Chicago in some few weeks from now? Yes. Yes. In fact, we'll be sh- ANA will be sharing a table with Pan. And as I said, I'll be speaking at the TAMS meeting and also at the WIN Women in Numismatics meeting. Very good. Yes, some of, some of our listeners don't know. Pan is Pennsylvania Area Numismatist, and Pennsylvania Association. I'm sorry. Of sorry, you, you correct me. I, I I got the right state. Yes, we just interviewed somebody with Win for this week's episode. And right. uh, and then of course you mentioned TAMS, that's the Tokens and Medals Society. Right. So at the Win meeting I'll be speaking on women in the Jewish American Hall of Fame. It's the same talk I presented at the uh, FEDM. Don't ask me to pronounce it. <laughs> Federation International of Med- of Metallic Art. Yes, yeah. Uh, in Ottawa. So Very I'm good. I'm going to be giving that presentation there. And Tams, I'm going to talk about topical collecting using Jewish American Hall of Fame medals. Fantastic. Thanks again, Mel. We appreciate it, and uh, we'll see you in Chicago. I look forward to it. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. All the best. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for being here today with us for our in-depth discussion on the U.S. Mint commemorative program, the U.S. paper money history, and of course for the interview with Mel Wax. If you're liking this episode or previous episodes, maybe you didn't like this episode. If you've liked any of what you've heard so far in these five months, follow us, subscribe, whatever podcast platform you choose. As noted earlier, we now are offering transcriptions every week. Until next time, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coin World Podcast was brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. All the safety, trust, and convenience you'd expect from Coin World. With over 40,000 coins available, visit coinworld.market to explore our inventory today.